I'll sing the sermon this morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not really going to do that. Uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Now, those of you who are ready and, and, and understand that when we read God's Word, we stand. And, and you see that we're going to cover all of the flood, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, all in one sermon, uh, everybody gets a little nervous. Is he going to read all three chapters while we're all standing up? Well, yes. Okay, no. Um, Genesis uh, chapter 6. Uh, let's stand as we read God's Word together. We will read uh, that chapter. Uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how... You are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all 
that God commanded him. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. That we would not merely leave this morning knowing more of the Bible, although that is extremely important for all of us. But that it would then translate into a greater knowledge of you, a greater love for you, and even encouragement to do all that you have commanded. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Surely, um, sometimes you watch the world around you. Surely, you watch the news and see all the things going on in the world. Surely, you watch classmates and uh, friends and neighbors and co-workers. And you watch the wickedness. And you think to yourself, How long, O Lord? I mean, surely there's a part of you, okay, it might even be for wicked, sinful reasons sometimes. Let's let's admit that. Let's admit that sometimes it's out of jealousy and anger. How come they prosper? How come they continue? How come the wicked continue to grow in the land? How is it that, that wicked, evil, ungodly leaders are not only not removed from office, but actually encouraged to stay there, it seems. How is it that that wickedness and ungodliness is allowed to, apparently, it seems, prosper in the world around us? We we keep thinking, surely, sooner or later, they're going to get what all that wickedness deserves. Surely sooner or later they will be judged for that or there'll be some consequence for that or, or how come that hasn't led to some really horrible destruction that, that they have to do? I mean, we think surely it's coming. Surely that's, that's going to come on them sooner or later. We know God promises not to let the guilty go unpunished. We know God hates sin. We know God loves righteousness. And then we look at the world and go, I just wish He would prove it to me sometimes. I just wish He would prove it to us that He hates sin and destroy all those wicked people or destroy that that evil or that sin. In many ways, that's exactly where Moses' initial reading audience or listening audience to Genesis. That's exactly where they are. They've, they've left Moses writing these first five books of the Bible for God's people somewhere between Egypt and the promised land, it would seem. They've seen God's judgment on Egypt. They've seen the deliverance for Israel from 
400 years of slavery and bondage in Egypt. They've, they've seen that. They've witnessed that. And now they're on the way to the promised land where there's yet more wickedness of various kinds and degrees, various uh, groups of, of people, nations opposed to God. The problem is that that first generation that left Egypt dies off. And the second generation needs to be encouraged. They need to know going into the promised land that God does indeed punish sin. That God does indeed judge wickedness and evil according to His holiness, His justice. We need that encouragement too. We need that same encouragement. We need the reminder that yes, God does judge wickedness and sin. God will go to great lengths to judge evil and promote holiness. We see that evidenced right here in Genesis 6-8 through in the account of the flood. We have this passage in part to encourage us that God does indeed, though patient, you remember Methuselah, the longest living man in history. Was it 969 years or something? Whose name means when he's gone, it will come. 969 years of God's patience. He's born and given the name, when He is gone, it will come. He died in the year of the flood. When, that's 969 years of God's patience, and yet, judgment on sin is a reality. Notice first, we have here the, the reason for the flood. Look at verses 9 through 13. Look at, look at creation at this point. The generations of Noah. Noah's a righteous man, a blameless man. But then, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, filled with violence. We're reminded of that again in verse 12. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13, the earth is filled with violence. That's not the description that we should read of creation. Those are not the words that we should find just five short chapters, four short chapters after creation. It, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, those words should stand out to us. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be corrupt and filled with violence. In fact, you'll notice in verse 12, God saw the earth. And, and if, you're, if you're sitting down, if you're opening God's Word and, and you're sitting down and reading from page 1 and, and you read continually from chapter 1 to here, when you get to verse 12 and you read, now the, um, and God saw the earth, your brain automatically inserts the next words. Right? And it was good. 
Because that was the pattern of chapter 1. Over and over and over. And God saw that it was good. That's not what verse 12 says. And God saw that it was corrupt. That it, that it was not the way it should be. And behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God looks and sees creation and it's not the very good creation at the end of Genesis 1. It is now the opposite of that. It is now corrupt and filled with violence. You can see here that that Moses is describing just how extensive sin has become. The reason for the flood, well, one of the reasons for the flood is just how extensive sin is. It's over all the earth, and all people are affected by it. It's all of creation, so much so that God determines to destroy not just people, but the plants, the animals. It's all going to be decreated. It's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be washed away because of just how much sin has ruined creation. Man has ruined the good earth that God created. In fact, we we see this again in the first eight verses of chapter uh, 6 as well. We we, we don't have the time, we're not going to take the time to unpack some of the questions in your head from the first few verses. If you, if you must have those questions answered, I drink coffee. And, and we can do that there. But notice the description in verses 1 and 2. Man began to multiply on the, on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Seth's godly line begins to watch Cain's ungodly line and say, those women look good. I'm going to marry them. It's living by sight, not by faith. It's, it's quite honestly, it's Eve all over again. She saw the fruit. It looked good. It looked pleasing to the eye. It looked like it would make me wise. And and so, therefore, she took and she ate. Forget God's command not to eat. Forget what God says about the fruit of this tree. My eyes tell me what that promise doesn't. I'm going by my eyes. That's... That's Seth's line. That's the the godly line. The sons of God looking and seeing the daughters of man. And they took them as their wives. You'll hear sometimes people say, well, the sons of God are angels and and that's what's going on. The problem is we have Jesus in the New Testament saying that angels don't marry. So that doesn't seem to make sense in this context. Here's your marriage advice from, from Seth's supposedly godly descendants. Is she good looking? If yes, marry her. No other requirements, nothing else about her matters. That's all, that's all that, that they go by. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive. 
And so they took them as their wives, any they chose. Even the way that's written, they took them as their wives. There's, there's a sense of force there. There's a sense of, of, I will oppress you into being my wife. Take that. There's wickedness throughout the land. We see the extensiveness of sin. It, it, it affects every part of creation so much so that God will destroy not just man, but all the animals, all the plants, and it extends even into those, those two genealogies that we've already sort of glanced at. Cain's ungodly line. Okay, we know that. But it's actually Seth's line too. This is, this is supposed to be the, the seed of the woman. This is supposed to be the godly line. This is the, supposed to be the line from which the promised Messiah will come. And they've decided... I'm going to marry Cain's daughters because they're attractive. That's my only requirement for marriage. Do they look good? That's, there's the, the picture of the extensiveness of sin. But sin's not just, not just everywhere out there. It's also in here. Notice not just the extensiveness of sin, but the intensiveness of sin as well. Did you, did you hear verse 5? Verse 5 is a difficult verse to read. Because of all the ways you look for an out, that Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, shuts those doors. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look for the bright spot. Look for the little shimmering ray of hope. Look for the silver lining in that dark cloud. I don't see one. Every thought. Sin's not just out there, but it comes from inside of me. We, we know this. We know this from even... Jesus Himself, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's not the food that you eat or not washing your hands before you eat that makes you unclean, that defiles you. It's what come out, comes out of your mouth that defiles you. Why? Because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. What you take into your mouth flows through a whole different system than what comes out of your mouth. What you say comes from the heart. And the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. According to Genesis 6.5. Sin can't run any deeper than that. Sin can't dive any deeper into you and me than, than that. That's where our sin is, quite honestly. It's rooted deep down inside of, of who we are. We so like to think of sin as externals, as the list of do's and don'ts. And I sin when I don't do the things I should, and I, and I sin when I do the things I'm not. We, we, we make it all external. We make it out there. 
And Genesis 6 says the real problem is not that sin is out there, but that sin is deep down inside of you. You will from time to time think to yourself. You will from time to time say either to yourself or to others, or you will hear other people say the world's getting darker. Look, just the world's getting darker and darker. Sin is getting worse and worse. There's a sense in which Noah, having lived through this, Moses having written about it, would probably say, I'm not sure I agree with you. Because that world was just as dark as ours. Mixed marriages, the the taking of wives... It's a world of darkness. It's a world of, of sin. Sin is extensive. Sin is intensive. It's widespread and pervasive. It's also invasive and digs deep and deeper into our, our hearts. What does God think about the spread of that sinful condition? What's God's response to the spreading of that wickedness and evil and man's sinful condition. Um, Some of you talk to yourselves. Some of you will kind of have conversations uh, when there's no one else in the room. You might even do it verbally. No one's going to make fun of you for doing that. Um, It's amazing how many times we see God doing that. God has these conversations within Himself. Let us make man. God has another conversation, if you will, in verse 7. Notice, so the Lord said, there's at this point, He's saying it to Himself. At at this point, he's, He's talking to Himself. He's talking within the Trinity. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. In other words, the punishment fits the crime. The crime is man has ruined what God made. And so the punishment is God will now ruin man for having done so. He will ruin creation on account of man. The flood then becomes God's means by which He he decreates the earth. He undoes His creation. And that's exactly what he, He tells God tells Noah in verse 13. Finally, God speaks this time to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. I'm going to destroy it all because of the violence the corruption that is in the earth because of man, because of, of you. The reason for the flood. Thankfully, though, there's also rescue from the flood. We see not just the reason for the flood, but we see the, the possibility of, of rescue from the flood. That's exactly what God goes into in verse 14. God has determined to save for Himself a people. 
And He's determined a means by which He will deliver those people from the judgment for sin. He's created a way, He's determined the means by which Noah and his family will be delivered from the flood. Noah finds favor in the eyes of God, verse 8. Have you, have you read Genesis before? And thought to yourself, Oh look, Noah was sinless. I mean, you're tempted to read that verse and say, well, that means that verse 5 applies to everybody except Noah. That means that the corruption and wickedness and the filling with violence, that means everybody but Noah. Because see, look, Noah must have earned God's favor somehow. We're tempted to think of, of Noah as somehow unaccounted for in verse 5. As, as not like the rest. Well, it happens to be the case that he is not like the rest, but perhaps not in the way you might think. Notice even the way verse 8 is written. Noah found favor. Noah didn't earn it. Noah didn't earn God's favor. He found it. But that does not mean he found it based on his actions or his works, His obedience. Yes, He's described in verse 9 as righteous and blameless. He's righteous. He desires to live a life that is consistent with God's Word. That's consistent with the commands of God. He wants to serve and follow and honor God. He's blameless it's really a reflection of a comparison blameless in his generation. He's not as wicked as everyone else around him. That doesn't make him perfect. It just makes him better than most. And in that generation, it appears it would be pretty easy to come out looking pretty good. Right? I mean, that's not much of a stand. Well, I'm, well of course God's going to accept me because I'm better than... Well, if He's your standard... That's not much of a standard to live up to. Noah finds favor. He finds grace. It's the same word, favor, in the eyes of the Lord. He finds grace in the sight of God. He's he's marked as one who at least to steal the language of of James 1.27, he wants to to remain unpolluted by the world, unstained from the world around him. You can look at those words in verse 9. Righteous refers to the way God sees him. Blameless refers to the way others see him. But those are true because of God's grace. Not the other way around. He's... He's righteous and blameless because of God's grace, not He has God's grace because He's righteous and blameless. In fact, you notice in verse 22 of chapter 6, how does, God, how does Noah react to 
God's information. God comes to Noah and says, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm killing everybody, all the people, and I'm going to destroy it all. And uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go make a boat. There's going to be a flood. And Noah says, what's a flood? There's going to be a lot of rain. And Noah says, what's, what's, what's rain? And, and I want you to build this boat. And then you get in it. And you get all these animals in it. And then when I send the flood, then you will be safe in this boat. And Noah responded, verse 22. He did this. He did all that God commanded him. What's the picture? What is, what is Noah doing here? Well, we, we know exactly what he's doing because Hebrews 11 tells us. Hebrews 11 tells us that Noah built a boat because of the promise of a flood someday in the future by faith. He did so by faith. He anticipated that which he could not yet see. He was assured of things hoped for. Convinced of things not yet seen. That's what faith is, according to Hebrews 11.1. Noah lives by faith. Noah begins building this boat. Noah faces opposition from people around him. He continues building this boat as, as his neighbors sort of point and smile and laugh at him and make fun of him. Because, I mean, what do, you, what do you need this boat for? There's a flood coming. A flood? Noah trusts God's promises. Noah trusts, believes things he has not yet seen. He's living by faith. But turn with me to chapter 8. Because I want you to notice something. We read chapter 6 and think to ourselves, Noah is not like the rest. Noah is good, righteous, perfect, and has earned God's favor because he's obedient. That's what we think when we get to chapter 6. Chapter 8 tells us otherwise. Look at verse 21. Noah gets off the boat, builds an altar, sacrifices animals. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But I thought Noah was different. Noah and his line are the only ones left at this point. I thought Noah was different. I thought Noah was perfect. Genesis 8.21 says otherwise. It says that it's not because of Noah's perfection that God chose Noah. It's because God set His affections on Noah that God chose Noah. The picture here in this, these chapters. Yes, there's reason for the flood. There's reason for judgment for sin. There's also, though, a means of rescue from the flood, but there's only one means of rescue from the flood. Okay, Noah, you take the boat option. I'm going to take the float on my back and swim for the whole time option. That option isn't given. 
Noah, you take the boat option, and I'm going to take the there's not really going to be a flood option. That, that option was not an option. Noah, you take the boat option, and I'm going to hang on to, I'm going to cut down a tree and just hang on to the tree the whole time. That option is not given. There's one way of rescue from the flood. There's one way of rescue from the promised coming of judgment for sin. Third thing I want you to see in this passage, though, very briefly. Not just the reason for the flood, not just the rescue from the flood, but also the restoration after the flood. Look at chapter 8. In verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Did you notice... Tell them, open the door, let everything off the ark. Why? So that they and you, Noah, might be fruitful and multiply. The exact same command given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful. Fill the earth. Bring forth children. Let your descendants rule the earth. Scatter my little image bearers Okay, yes, now they're marred by sin, but scatter them all over the earth. In fact, in case you want to say, well, but that verse 15 or 16, whichever one it was, 17, sure sounds like it's talking about the animals. What about, what about Noah and his family? Okay, chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, here's the direct command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Yes, God decreates because of sin and then restores through Noah and his family. There's not just destruction in the flood, not just the decreation, but then there's restoration, there's hope, there's recreation, restoration of all that God made. Noah and his family have been safely delivered through the judgment, set down on the other side. God has kept His promises to His people to deliver Noah and his family from sin. The seed of the woman has been preserved. We still anticipate the the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent. God punishes sin. But he delivers his people. Let me make a few applications from this passage. Uh, first application, this passage reminds us all over again of God's sovereign work in salvation. Of all the people on the earth, Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the sight of God. Why? It isn't because of his righteousness. It's because of God's grace. 
It reminds us all over again of God's sovereign work, sovereign election in bringing salvation to whom He will based not on anything in us, based solely on His love and grace and mercy. A second application, you you can't miss the covenant implications of this. Who found favor in God's sight? Noah. Who was saved? Noah and his family. This is is the covenant. This is part of the reason we as a Reformed Presbyterian church in Athens, we baptize infants. We don't think they're saved just because they're born or just because water's been sprinkled on their heads, but we're claiming God's covenant promises on behalf of their parents to them. Noah finds favor in the sight of God. Noah and Mrs. Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives are all delivered. There's covenant application, covenant implications for in the flood. A third application. You and I read this passage as though it's only history to us. By that I mean, well, the flood was a really long time ago, and Noah was a really long time ago, and the flood came and did what it did and destroyed, and then Noah and his family refilled the earth again, and okay, so we see that merely as, as history in that sense. Let me encourage you that there's a sense in which you're actually living what Noah lived. Has not God promised judgment for sin? Is that judgment not yet some time off in the future? Are you and I not called to live as though that is a reality, though we don't yet see it? You and I live in anticipation of the return of Christ, of the second coming of Christ, when decreation happens again, not by flood, but by fire. When judgment for sin comes once and for all, and those found outside of Christ, not trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, sin is going to be completely, finally, fully eradicated from the new creation. We anticipate sort of landing on the other side of the flood, if you will, when there will be no more sin. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more disease. And yet you and I are called to live in the, but I don't see it yet, time. You and I are called to live in anticipation of Christ fulfilling His promises to come, to judge sin, to rid the world of sin and its effects. God is yet going to destroy the earth again and recreate it fully and finally and completely without any sin. So the question for us then is, are you in the greater ark? Are you in the ark? Are you in Christ? The only means by which we might be delivered from that judgment for sin. Are you found in the ark? Are you 
Trusting in the person and work of Christ and Him alone for your salvation. Is your hope built on, on His obedience to the Father? His sacrificial death? His blood shed on the cross? His death, His burial, His resurrection, His defeating sin, His interceding for you? Is that your hope? If so, you're in the ark. You've gotten in, you're in the ark. Know that Christ will deliver you safely on the other side. If that's not your hope, if you're saying, well, I'm going to look for the tree to float on, I'm going to look for the other option, there is no other option. This passage tells you your only hope of deliverance from judgment for sin is to be in the ark that God provides for His people. If you're trusting in Christ, If you're not trusting in Christ, run to Him. If that's not your hope, run to Christ. Let me encourage you believers. Yes, I'm I'm in the ark as it were. I'm in Christ. I'm, I'm trusting in Christ and in Him alone. Are you living this life in a way to prepare for the next? Are you using your means in this life to prepare for the one that is to come? Or are you living, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow it's all over. Tomorrow we die. Would people mock you because you live in anticipation of the life that is to come? Do neighbors sort of deride you a little bit for the way you the way you treat your Sundays, the, the, where do you go every Sunday? Why do you go to church? What? Or do you have people, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to participate in that. Are there people that make fun of you because of, of anticipation, living in anticipation of the life that is to come? We're reminded that we need to live by faith. We pray that God would grant us the faith to live this life in hope of the next. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have become our ark. Uh, That You are for us uh, the only means of salvation. The only way uh, we might be delivered from sin. Lord Jesus, we thank You for being faithful even to bear the brunt of judgment in our place that we might not have to. Would You strengthen us for life in this world, anticipating the next? Would You you equip us to live in this life because we so long for the one that is yet to come, the one we can't yet see, but the one that you've promised to us. And Father, would you prick consciences? Would you draw men and women and boys and girls into the ark that there in Christ they might find deliverance? It's in his name that we ask him. Amen.